This episode of The Past and the Curious is sponsored by our friends at Candlewick Press, publisher of Amber and Clay, the new middle grade novel by Newberry Medal winning author Laura Amy Schlitz. Set in ancient Greece with a narrative that blends verse, prose, and illustration, this story is perfect for fans of poetry, ancient history, and mythology. In a review of Amber and Clay, Book Page wrote, This splendid novel could easily join a curriculum on ancient Greece, helping to humanize the people and events of the past and inspiring readers to learn even more about this fascinating period in history. Amber and Clay is available now wherever books are sold. And thanks to Candlewick Press. Oh, it was so embarrassing. I can't even begin to tell you. Everybody knows platinum is the atomic number 78. And that's what I said when I was talking about gold. I was Gold is 79, and I said 78, and I, it was really embarrassing. But what are you, what are you saying? We're on, we're on, we're on. Oh, hey, my name is Mick Sullivan, and this is The Past and the Curious. Welcome. This episode is about gold, which is the atomic number 79. I need you to know that I know that. First, I have some fun news. Uh, if you have ever had any questions that you've wanted to ask me, like, I don't know, why I like history so much, or who my heroes are, or if I ever wore braces, I did. Uh, I'm partnering with my friends at All Things Madison Podcast. Madison was the voice of Willa Brown in the last episode, and she has a show of her own, and she and I are scheduled to talk on her podcast in April, which will release in late April or early May, and we'll use as many of the questions that you send to us for that interview. Once it's released, I'll share a link so you can listen to it. Send those questions in. You can email them to me at hello at thepastandthecurious.com. Okay, on with the show. Have you ever lost something? Maybe something valuable, or maybe just something that you valued because it was special. And not lost like, oh, I misplaced it. I'm sure it'll turn up though. I mean lost lost. Maybe the time you lost this thing, you just knew that it was gone for good. If you've been there, you know what a bummer that can be. Well, this happened to the man that you're about to meet. He was a Jewish immigrant from Germany, and when he lost his valuable stuff, it was lost alongside with some other valuable stuff that belonged to some other people. And because of it, almost all of America freaked out. Seriously, it was called the Panic of 1857. If nothing else, you can be grateful that whatever you lost didn't lead to a national panic. Luckily though, this guy would come up with a plan to cover everyone's rear. Literally. His name was Levi Strauss. Levi was born in Bavaria, Germany in 1829, and had originally been named Loeb Strauss. His father was a peddler, selling clothes, cookware, and other things from a pushcart. But in the 19th century, there were laws limiting Jewish people's freedom in this part of the world. Terribly unfair rules were made that said things like only the firstborn son of a Jewish family could marry. Another law made the job of peddler, like Strauss's father, illegal. His older brothers, Louis and Jonas, grew fed up with the discrimination and went to America, settling in New York. They told Levi it was a land rich with opportunity. After his father died, Levi, at age 18, and his mother sailed across the Atlantic for America. He hoped to be a part of the dry good business his brothers ran. By the way, the term dry goods in America typically referred to fabrics, textiles, clothing, sometimes tobacco and grains, 
basically anything that wasn't groceries or hardware. Jonas and Lewis called their little shop J. Strauss and Brother, which probably prompted a heated conversation or two. So, Jonas, I'm uh, looking at the sign on our building and wondering, why do you get to be J. Strauss and I'm just Brother? Because you are my brother. I have a name. I know, brother. We started the business together, Jonas. Seems like my initials would fit up there, too. It wouldn't kill you to put them up there. I mean, J and L Strauss is actually fewer letters than Strauss and brother. Is it, it's not, is it a matter of space? Oh, it's not about that. It just feels like you're trying to cut me out, Jonas. Brother, no. I... I, I am the oldest, so it is only right that my name is up on the sign. Only right? That's absurd! And why won't you call me by my name? Brother, brother, let's not lose our temper. My name is Lewis! Calm down, brother. Of course, when young Levi showed up to join the business, things had to change. Well, with your old brother Levi joining, we should probably talk about changing that name up there on that sign to include me, huh? What do you say? I was thinking L.L.J. Strauss, or maybe Jonas, Lewis, and Levi, you know, the three bromigos. No? Well, okay, we can we can workshop it. I'm, I'm open. We're going to go with J. Strauss, brother, and company. Wait, wait, what? J. Strauss, brother, and company. I'm not asking for much here. But you wouldn't even go with J. Strauss and brothers? Like, plural? I'm not even a brother, I'm just... company? What a kick in the pants! That wasn't the last kick in the pants. Pretty soon, the brothers had other plans for young Levi. California was wild with opportunity. The gold rush, the booming population, and the general lack of suppliers and stores. So they got the bright idea to send him out there, ship him goods, have him sell those goods, and then send some of those profits back to them in New York. So what about you two? Why won't either one of you go? The saying is, go west, young man. That's you. You're young, man. We've got families. We're established. You see this? That's gray hair. But you! You're practically a fresh young tumbleweed roaming freely in the desert. It's a great opportunity. Plus, you can name the western branch after yourself. How's Levi Strauss and company sound? Yeah, okay. You got a deal. It was 1853 when he made it to California at the age of 23, and Levi quickly rented a warehouse, which doubled as his uncomfortable place to sleep. He filled it with dry goods his brother shipped from back east, and he introduced himself to potential clients and was soon getting orders for fabrics, shirts, hosiery, tents, and more. As soon as he earned his first money, he made his first donation, the first of many throughout his lifetime. He was a good businessman, easy to like, and hardworking by nature. It didn't take long for him to become a business leader in the area. Thanks to the gold rush, there were thousands of people filling hundreds of towns, bursting at the seams, and in need of goods to use and wear. Levi kept them well supplied, and as a result would send his money, sometimes in the form of gold, back to New York. This is where that original question about losing stuff comes into the story. The SS Central American was known as the Ship of Gold. And the ship of gold made many journeys in its day, at least until it didn't anymore. 
Sinking in the ocean tends to put an end to a boat's usefulness. Before the digging of the Panama Canal, which was a man-made canal for boats through the country of Panama, people had two ways to get to the Pacific Ocean from the Atlantic. They could travel by boat all the way around South America down past Cape Horn and Chile, which was a really long trip. Or they could sail to a Central American country, like Panama, travel across the land, and then board another boat to California, or wherever it may be that they were heading. The journey also worked in reverse. And during the 1850s, the SS Central America ran the route from Panama up the east coast of America to New York City. And it earned its nickname, the Ship of Gold, because along with people, it often carried California gold bound for the banks of New York. On its last journey in 1857, it carried 30,000 pounds of gold, which at the time was valued at $8 million. In today's money, that would be over $550 million. And Levi put a whole bunch of his own gold on that ship to send to his brothers. His portion was worth $72,000 at the time, which is over $2 million now. Somewhere off the coast of North Carolina, the SS Central America encountered a hurricane. And down went the gold. And there it stayed for a century and a half. The panic of 1857 that followed was a financial crisis that had the people of the United States very worried about the economy. The lost gold wasn't the only reason for the panic, but it was a large part of the panic. Panic or no panic, nothing would break Levi's industrious spirit. And for years, he kept California and the West supplied with dry goods. Then, one day, he got a letter from one of his clients. It would change his fortunes, and the world, forever. Like Levi, Jacob Davis was a Jewish immigrant in America. Only he had come from Latvia, where he had been trained as a tailor. While living in Reno, Nevada, a woman visited his shop with a very specific need. My husband works so hard, and he is constantly tearing his pants. Usually right here, at the pocket. He can't be walking around with his underwear hanging out. Can you make him some pants that won't rip? The original solution was a pair of pants made of duck cloth, which is a heavy fabric he bought from Levi Strauss. They were called waist overalls, and he made a new alteration. He put brass rivets at the stress points, like at the edges of the pockets. And they worked like a charm. No one ever saw that man's underwear peeking through his pants again. And soon enough, everyone wanted a pair of their own. Jacob couldn't keep up. So he sent a letter to Levi Strauss with details about the new pants, and he suggested a partnership. Davis needed Levi's money to get started, but he also figured that Levi could help in manufacturing. Now, if he had not been an honorable man, Levi could have easily taken Davis's idea, which he just sent to him, and done it himself. But he was not that kind of man, and Jacob Davis knew it. Together, they filed a patent and opened a workshop which Davis would manage in San Francisco. May 20th, 1873, the day the patent was awarded to the two men, is generally called the birthday of the blue jean. They settled on using a durable fabric called denim. Originally, this cloth was called serge de Nîmes. Serge is a type of fabric, and Nîmes is a town in France where it was originally made. So the name Serge de Nîmes roughly translates to fabric from Nîmes. Over time, Serge de Nîmes was shortened to denim. The rest, as they say, is history. 
it might surprise Levi and Jacob to learn that their waist overcoats, <clears throat> I mean, blue jeans, cover rear ends all over the world and on all kinds of people today. Their original customers were laborers like miners and cowboys and railroad workers. It is for this reason that Levi Strauss, a man whose name is synonymous with blue jeans, never wore a pair of blue jeans himself. He always dressed in a suit. He died in 1902 and was remembered in his community of San Francisco as much for his philanthropy and charitable giving as he was for his gifts to modern fashion. Unfortunately, the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906 and the fires that it caused destroyed much of the history and records related to Levi and his company. It's terribly sad to lose so much history, and this is why preservation and archives are so important. Luckily, a researcher and author named Lynn Downey has been piecing together the story for decades, and it is because of her incredible work that we are able to share this story with you. So thanks, Lynn. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. This month's You Have 30 Seconds comes all the way from Cambridge, England. And our friend Masha, take it away. Hello, my name is Masha and I live in Cambridge, England. Here's something about Monopoly. During the Second World War, the UK government asked Waddingtons to make special Monopoly games that would be sent by charities to prisoners of war being held in Europe. The boxes contained real gold, hidden maps and compasses to help prisoners escape and reach safety. I love stories like that when there's espionage involved and getting people out with secret shipments. That's really cool stuff. Thank you so much, Masha. If you have a story you would like to tell and you can do it in 30 seconds or less, then then record it. It's easy. You could do it on a phone or something like that and send it our way. There's instructions on our website. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. This is a gold quiz, so let's see if you can earn the gold medal. No prizes will actually be awarded. Question number one. America wasn't the only country with a gold rush. 
which country had a gold rush of their own a few years after America's, beginning, for the most part, in 1851? It was Australia. Shout out to the Australian listeners. I know there's a lot of you out there. So, hello. Um, gold was actually discovered there in 1848, the same year that it was discovered in California. But the Australian government tried to keep it secret at first. But then lots of Australians started heading to California to cash in on the gold, unaware that there was some underneath their own feet. So, by 1851, the gold rush was officially on. And like in America, it brought immigrants from all over the world to see what they could mine. Question number two. Which country produces the most gold in the world? China is number one in gold, followed by Australia, Russia, the United States of America, and South Africa. There's some dispute in the orders there, depending on where you look. But there is a disagreement on how much gold there actually is in the world, but by educated guesses, it is believed that all of the world's gold would fit into a cube whose sides were 67 feet long, which is also a little over 20 meters. Or you could think about it this way. You could melt it all down and it would fill two Olympic swimming pools. Question number three, your third and final question. On May 10th, 1869, a crowd assembled in Utah Territory in America to watch Leland Stanford hammer a big golden nail into the dusty ground. What on earth did this golden nail hold down? It was the last spike driven into the newly completed Transcontinental Railroad, which was the first of the sort in America. One crew was building the railroad from the east and heading west, and another crew was building from the west and heading east. When they met in the middle, the lines were connected with the Golden Spike. Of course, soon after it was pulled up and is now safe in a museum. But the completion of the rail line was a huge, huge moment in history and one that could not have been achieved if not for the hard work and dedication of thousands of Chinese immigrants in America. The large number of people who left Germany for America around the same time as Levi Strauss were often referred to as the 48ers. Levi left primarily because of discrimination towards Jewish people, but there were other reasons that people left. Many fled Germany because there was a revolution against several monarchies or kings and queens in Europe. People wanted a government run by people rather than a royal family, but the revolution of 1848 didn't work out for all of the people as they had hoped, and many decided to leave for their own safety. So many of them came to America around 1848 that they became known as the 48ers. That very same year in America, at a place called Sutter's Mill in California, a man found gold and reported it to the paper. This was the beginning of the American gold rush. And the following year, 1849, saw thousands of people head to the western side of the American continent. Many more followed in the years after. People from Mexico and China came to mine the land. People from the east coast of America and Native Americans did too. The rush of people earned all of the new prospectors a nickname, 49ers, in honor of the year 1849, that the rush for gold really got kicking. 
Even some of those recent German immigrants headed straight to the West, which meant those 48ers became 49ers. Ferminia Saris wasn't a 48er or a 49er. She would have only been about nine years old at the time. If 83ers would have been a thing, that might have been a nickname for her because that was the year of her first mining claim. She started her path to the mines of the American West in the late 1870s, but she didn't come from the United States or Germany or anywhere else in Europe for that matter. She came from Nicaragua. Nicaragua was independent by the time she was born. It had been under Spanish control for centuries. Ferminia had never set foot on Spanish soil, but that didn't stop her from going out of her way to tell everyone that she was a proper Spanish lady. The Contreras family of Spain, of which she was a part, had governed Nicaragua for many years, and she felt this was an important part of her heritage. It might have been, but one thing it didn't do was make her rich. She still had hungry mouths to feed and dreams of a lavish life. Like Nicaragua at the time, which she didn't completely identify with, she was totally and completely independent. Nicaragua, like Panama, was a common path for people traveling from the Atlantic Ocean in the east to the Pacific Ocean in the west, often bound for California. They would take a ship, travel by land over Nicaragua, and hop on another ship for California. And it seemed like each boatload that arrived filled the air with chatter about gold and riches ripe for the taking in the areas around California. Would-be gold-rich prospectors passing through excited the imagination of local Nicaraguans as well. Many decided to head to America to join the rest of the crowds digging in the dirt for minerals, ore, and precious metals. Married and with children, Ferminia decided that she had what it took to strike it rich. And if anyone could handle the job, it was definitely a mob. There's no record of her husband joining her in America. He might have died, or she might have left him behind. Either way, she showed up in California with her kids and a hankering for gold in 1876. It took her a few years to really stake a claim. But by 1880, she and her children had landed in Virginia City, Nevada, after leaving San Francisco. Unlike many of the miners in the area, Verminia probably never donned a pair of blue jeans. Instead, she was usually dressed in a black, ankle-length taffeta dress. That's right, black taffeta dress. You know, typical desert wear, great for hot sunny days, of which there were plenty, in Nevada. Driven by a dream of making it rain gold, and unfazed by the dusty, dry air, unforgiving sun, and perplexingly cold nights of the American desert, she and some of her older kids traveled 100 miles from Virginia City to a mining camp in Nevada, on foot. Of course, if you're going to get into the mining game, you're going to need some supplies. So she had traded her few possessions for ones that would be more useful to mining. You know, pickaxes, shovels, pans, food that wouldn't spoil, which though it wouldn't spoil, certainly wasn't delicious. All of this stuff she would carry on her back, in the Nevada sun, in a black taffeta dress. Obviously, she was not a typical person. Life was tough for prospectors in the American West. The work was brutal, and most people rarely found much of value. It was also dangerous. Chinese immigrants faced cruel racism, as did the Native Americans who worked for their fair share. It's likely that life was similarly difficult for a woman in the fields like Ferminia. 
She earned a reputation for never backing down, though, and was quick to protect her holdings, her honor, and her family, usually with the six-shooter on her hip. It was in the mining community of Candelaria Hills that she settled. Among the other miners working in the area, people had found some gold, some silver, and some copper. All of these things were, and still are, valuable today, but no one really found these in great quantities. When something was found, however, the prospector would stake a claim. Staking a claim is something that is still possible to do today. If you're interested, there is information about how to do so from the government agency, the Bureau of Land Management. You know, if you ever get a wild hair and want to go prospecting yourself. Basically, any public government land could be claimed. First, Verminia would find a plot of land that had not been claimed by someone else. Then she would dig systematically, a little here, a little there, trying to get a feel for what was under the surface and hoping to find something. Most times, she would not. But if she did find something, and it just had to be one tiny piece of something like gold or silver, she could stake a claim. So the next step would be actually using stakes, not the kind that some people eat, but rather wooden poles. Measuring off a few acres of land around the discovered gold, she would hammer wooden stakes into the ground at four corners, making a square. After a little bit of paperwork for filing the claim with the government, this was her land. Any gold or silver discovered here would be hers. Of course, lots of people tried to mine in secret on other people's land. This was called claim jumping, and it's usually where six shooters came in. The West could be a violent place. After many fruitless digs, Verminia hit her first payoff. She staked a claim. She found silver, and a good bit of it. Next came something very important. Verminia Saras, it's time to play Name That Claim! That's right, you gotta name that claim. See, it was customary to give your mine or your claim a name and many of the names sounded similar to the names of ships in the ocean. To drive that point home, I submit this fact. Verminia named her first successful claim the Central America. So while Levi Strauss suffered his first loss on a boat with that name, the Central America carried Verminia towards her first major success. A successful payoff meant a few things to Verminia. One, she could reinvest some of the money and grow her mining business. Two, she could feed her family. And three, she could treat herself to some nice things. Being from a Spanish noble family, she probably had a deep-seated taste for good food, nice clothes, and a soft bed. So whenever she was flush with cash, these were the things in which she indulged. And to someone working their tail off in the desert heat, I think we can all agree we do the same. Let's all say it together. Verminia, treat yourself. Treat yourself. After some fancy clothes and savory meals, one of the things she treated herself to was a toll road in Death Valley. It was a good purchase. This provided a steady source of income during the times that she was coming up empty-handed while prospecting, which was often. It wasn't until the turn of the century that she really made her fortune. She claimed several copper mines, and in fact was nicknamed the Copper Queen. But when more copper was found in the area, it sparked a rush of people with deep pockets wanting to get in on this copper rush without having to do a lot of the hard work. Verminia was getting older and really preferred not to do the mining either. So she sold 25 of her land claims, which were filled with copper, to investors. Each one was sold for $8,000, which means she quickly found herself $200,000 richer. In 1900, this was a fortune. 
She didn't put it in the bank, though, because she did not trust the banks in the Wild West. Probably a good decision. Of course, at this time around her life, the railroad was a booming and growing business. Because of all the activity around copper mines in her area of Nevada, people realized that there needed to be a railroad depot in the area of Candelaria Hills. But mines, like Ferminia's, made the land too expensive to buy for the railroad companies. So they went a little north and founded a new town and built a depot to service the area. They called that town Mina, in honor of Farminia Saras, the Copper Queen. Well, that was a really fun show to put together. Thanks for listening. I'm glad you tuned in. Uh, And there's plenty more where that came from. I promise you that. I have some Patreon people to thank. First off, thank you, Claire, Matt, and Sharon Murphy. Very good friends of mine. Claire, what's up? Haven't seen you in a while. Hope to see you soon. Roberto in Minnesota. Susan Shepard and Roberto and Susan. If there are people that, like, maybe are kids that you want me to thank, then just send me an email and I'll gladly reshout them out. Um, the Cook Kids of Seattle! Hello, Cook Kids! How are you? Thank you for listening. Tim Workinger, or Workinger, and Carrie Stevens, same goes for you. If there's a kid that I should thank, or if you are a kid, hello to both of you. If you're not a kid, then tell me who I should thank. Um, Sean, Maya, and Jenna Rose in Illinois! Sean, Maya, Jenna Rose in Illinois! Carolyn Walker, hello. Oh, these are good. Talk to the I talk to your mom. Max and Stella. Thank you so much. I am so excited you enjoy the show. Max and Stella. And also Steph Stevens. Uh, you are going to get a song next month. So um, check your messages and uh, tell me what I should make the song about. We've had a lot of family mottos and and things like that. So if you want to keep with that tradition, that'd be great. If not, that's fine. Speaking of songs, I owe the O'Shea's a song. The O'Shea's recently, I think, moved to Alaska. I think that was a recent move. And in doing so, they discovered something new. And it's become a bit of a family motto or just something that they say. Um, if you didn't know, moose is the plural of moose. And uh, they they use that. And then I put some silliness in there. So the only thing that they believe is that moose is the plural of moose. All the other stuff was just me being a goofball. So O'Shea's, I hope you like your song. And uh, let me know how you feel. Oh, hey, it's the O'Shea's. I got a little thing that I want to say. I hope that it would be okay if I sing this song about something you learned today. Moose is the plural of moose. Goose is the plural of goose. Uh, no, no, it's not. Loose is the plural of loose. That's not even a noun. Moose is the plural of moose. Okay. Yeah. Oh, hey, it's the O'Shea's. Jane, Ezra, Elisha. Moose is the plural of moose. Yes. Goose is the plural of goose. No. Loose is the plural of loose. That's an adjective. Moose is the plural of moose. Okay. 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 Thanks to the O'Shea's, and thanks to all of our Patreon sponsors, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, if you have any questions that you would like to add to the interview with All Things Madison, um, 
anything you want to ask me or you're curious about, then send those on to hello at thepastandthecurious.com and we will compile those and use everything that we can. We'll talk to you in April with a new episode here, and I'll also share the link with that interview when it comes. So, my name is Mick Sullivan, this has been a pleasure, and I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye!